are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. We call some of those folks sommeliers, wine aficionados, wine experts, wine gurus, and the most commonly used title, boring. Welcome to Grape Encounters. We love wine just as much as anyone else, but while we crave those special wines that are silky smooth and go down so easy, we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. There is one overriding premise here at Grape Encounters. Wine pairs best with life. Accordingly, your host David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time, how to have more fun with your wine, where to enjoy wine the most, how to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. I'm going to admit it. I think for the past couple of weeks, I've been a little bit cynical. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, I've just been cynical about some things. And I thought to myself, I just want to get into some really happy, fun topics. (laughs) And there's no better route to happy and fun than the person who has appeared on this show as a guest more than anybody else. You guys are scratching your heads out there going, oh, I know who it is. And I know who it is. It is. It's Wes Hagen. I like to call him the inimitable Wes Hagen. Except no substitutes. There is nobody else on the planet like him. He's my go-to guy. I know that if I have a question when it comes to wine, I could call Wes up. I could call him at 3 in the morning, too, because he is the wine answer man. And he will never lie to me. He will never BS me. He will tell it like it is. And the scary part is he always knows the answer. Wes, welcome. So glad to be back in the studio with you, my friend, David. Yeah, you know what? We've been doing some pieces in the last year, and I think almost all of them were over the phone. Yeah, well, I've just been super busy. I've been all over the country promoting all the wines for the Miller Family Wine Company. And so I'm not in the Valley, and I'm not just in the central coast of California as much. Like last week, I was in uh, northern Minnesota at uh, a great event called Divine Minnesota, where it was 19 degrees below zero. Oh, my gosh. So, So it's lovely to be back here on the central coast to California in the mid-60s. That doesn't sound pleasant. No, it was fantastic. I love northern Minnesota. The people are so kind. Are they drinking much wine in Minnesota this time of the year? The greatest thing about visiting Minnesota in the winter as a winemaker, wherever you go, people buy two to three times more wine from me because I'm willing to be in Minnesota in the winter. You you probably (laughs) didn't know, but I lived in Minnesota for a while teaching community college. I did not know that. And actually, me fleeing the winter of Minnesota to come back to the central coast was the beginning of me being a winemaker in 1994. I had no idea. I thought you were just like totally California boy. Well, almost four generations, but you know, you got to go try to see the world. So when you come back uh, to California, you know exactly what you've missed. So for the people who have been under a rock and don't know who Wes Hagen is, yeah, (laughs) you have been coming on for 12 years now. And I just got to run through the high points. You are a tremendous winemaker and you're now making the wine for Jay Wilkes. Correct. in, In California on the central coast, a wine educator, an author of AVAs, a wine judge, 
a fashion model. <laughs> By the way, and I, I thought my shirt was loud today when I put it on. I thought, I said, Wes is going to really like laugh at my shirt. And then you come in <laughs> looking we like- got, We got two shirts built for radio. You look like you, look like you just came back from Haight-Ashbury in the 60s, Well, dude. thank you, man. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, so you heard me do the introduction. I was really talking about the fact that I was just sort of down on pretentiousness and trying to give people a little bit of a break. And I sure. that's sort of the mission of this show is to tell people, look, you know what? If you don't get the tasting note thing, it's okay. You don't have to give up wine and just drink Crystal Light. You don't have to know everything that some people would insist that you need to know to be a wine lover. So I thought we'd get into some more fun topics. Let's do it. And the thing that I think is awesome about you, Wes, is that you know so much. And you're, I mean, you're a reader, a studier. I can't even imagine how all of this fits in your brain, the, the information that's there. But you also, though, speak human. Yeah. And I really love that. Well, I like humans. And by the way, you're going to take us through a little exercise, right? Oh, at uh, some point, yeah, I told uh, you that in three to four minutes or less that I can connect basically all science, cosmology, microscopy, basically the entire world of science and teach you why it had to do with wine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wine is responsible. I'm not, I've, I've, I've not heard that piece. I've, I've heard you do the history of wine from, you know, start until today. And you do that in like, what, five, five minutes or four minutes? Right? Yeah, it depends on how much time I have. Have, but uh, I it's a great. It's I like to call it the greatest story never told. And and by the way, you can find Wes doing that. At least you used to be able to on YouTube. Sure. Yeah, I've got a channel there, and there's a, a number of Vias for Vino on Amazon. There's lots of different stuff where I'm doing the wine history stuff. Okay, let's first of all jump into a topic that I have been kind of dissing on a bit recently, and I'll explain why. And it has to do with pairing wine. Sure. For one thing, I probably like you get invited to. 500 pairing dinners a year. And I know you host a lot of those dinners. But the thing that bothers me about it is they're not rooted in reality because you've got chefs that are making up some really stunning dishes mm. that Mr. and Mrs. Johnson and the kids are not going to be eaten on their dinner table normally. Right. So that's why I think a lot of it gets lost on people. It's like, wouldn't it be nice yeah. if I could get a bottle of wine and then have somebody create food for it right? or just the opposite? But that's not how it works, right? Well, it's the, the idea for me is food and wine pairing is a great passion of mine. I teach at the local community college here. I teach four different classes on food and wine pairing. So you're talking to a guy who's academically connected to food and wine pairing and who's also attached to it in a much more sort of humanist way in the sense that I have a saying I like to say that a bottle of wine is an investment to keep the people we love at table for an extra hour every day. So put together time, wine, and food and someone you love in the middle, you've got everything you need. For example, Tim Haney, who's a great guy. I think he's, I actually, love he's been on the show, right? So he just published a kind of a, about a year ago, we published a fairly controversial article and I can't exactly say the name of it, but it is food and wine pairing is BS. Right. We've had him on talking about. Yeah. What it is, is let's stop worrying so much. We have this misnomer that somehow in Europe, there's a perfect wine for every dish and that it's been codified. No, 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 no. Let's look at a bottle of wine on a table like salt and pepper. Who talks about 
about the salt and pepper. Why do we need to talk about wine? Let's put a bottle of wine on the table, put delicious things on the table, get interesting people there and people we care about and people we love because it's far more important who we drink with than what we drink. And, and Tim will tell you, by the way, that that salt and pepper is very important because you can adjust how a wine pairs with a food right. by adjusting the food. And in Europe and other places, sometimes they'll scoff at Americans for Asking wanting for salt and pepper, but you got to go to Tim's website and check it out. Uh, it's uh, timhani.com. Yeah. And I think the fundamental issue here is that food tastes delicious with wine and that why we put wine on table is not only to make us feel good and keep us there for a little bit longer, but wine washes our palate clean in between bites. Wine is one of the few things that can strip fat off the human taste buds in the papillae. So you eat food, whether it's avocado, or lamb, whether you're a vegan or a carnitarian, you're basically putting fat in your mouth. And once you put fat in your mouth, you're not going to be able to taste anything until you get that fat off your tongue. And wine is a solution that it's, has acid and alcohol and tannin. Yeah, basically creates a barrier between your taste buds and whatever's going in your mouth. Right. I like to say wine is like a, uh, it's like a wet nap for the palate. You know, it's like get your palate clean between bites so you can taste that delicious food over and over. And just put a bottle of wine on the table and don't worry so much about, is it going to be a perfect match? What you're going to find is wine is delicious with food, wine is delicious with people, and put them all together, you're going to have a great time. And remember that the wine is going to change the way the food tastes, the food is going to change the way the wine tastes. But one of the most important things that I think people forget is that food has become vastly more complex these days in terms of flavor. Mm. More sauces, different interpretations of how you make a chicken dish or right. a pasta dish. And we've always been taught, going back certainly to my parents' generation, you pair the wine with the protein, and that's not what you do. You pair the wine with the dominant flavor on the table. So, you know, anybody that's ever had a gorgeous piece of chili laying sea bass in a you know, some kind of a black bean sauce or something like that. It's really good with, you know, a darker sauce. Even you, you've got this very delicate light fish. You're not going to pair with that fish. No. You're going to pair with that sauce. That could potentially take you from white to red. Indeed. And I only have two rules of wine and food pairing, and that's match the intensity of the wine to the intensity of the dish, the flavor profile. So if it's a big flavorful dish, you need a big flavorful wine. If it's an elegant wine, elegant dish. And then the second rule is just match the level of fat in the dish with the level of acidity and, and tannin in the wine. That voice is Wes Hagen. He's my bud. This show probably wouldn't even exist if it were not for you because you, in so many ways, have energized the show. So I so appreciate it. But we're not going to talk about $48 a pound Chilean sea bass. When we come back, we're going to do some pairing with things that are definitely in everybody's comfort zone. We're going to start with pizza, Wes, when mm. we come back. You love pizza, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm unfortunately a type 1 diabetic, so I don't get to eat it very often, which oh, means no. I, I even want it more. Okay, but uh, you certainly know what it tastes like. Oh, indeed, All right, indeed. we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. My special guest, Wes Hagen. He's the wine know-it-all and in a good way. And we've got lots to talk about today on Grape Encounters. You're going to have a great time at the dinner, but ultimately, I want to go to an event. We like to talk about wine. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. 
They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. Here's David. If you're into wine, there is no shortage of events that you can go to to pair wine with food. Food that, if you go to a restaurant, is going to be crazy expensive. You're probably not going to make it home. You're going to have a great time at the dinner, but ultimately... I want to go to events that give me something to take home that I can incorporate into my life and make life more interesting. You know, case in point, I like pizza. Oh. I don't need a lot of that voice that's groaning in the background. Mm. That is Wes Hagen. Yes. Doesn't get to eat as much pizza as you like. I but, wish I could eat more pizza. But you do eat pizza. I do. I do. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, you know, take pizza for a second. I'm thinking about like eight or nine different well-known pizza combinations that people buy and we eat it all the time. Do you really know what wine to pair with it? Absolutely. I mean, no, what- well, no, I'm saying to the audience, do oh, you sure. really know? Because the instinct for most people is, oh, pizza, it's Italian. Get a bottle of Italian vino or, you know, something that is Italian style and do that. And right. frankly, there are as many reasons to pair white wine with pizza as there are red wine. So you want to jump into it, Wes? Uh, well, well, I'm going to throw pizzas at you. Not, yeah. <laughs> not oh, thank literally. you. Wait, wait. I, I ducked. First, you can comment on this and then sure. I'll throw a pizza at you, okay? Well, I think you basically, there's an old saying in France that you sell on cheese, meaning that cheese makes all wine taste good. So you're talking about bread, cheese, and some sauce that has some acidity. So you have a built-in balance on that dish that is basically going to appeal to almost any beverage you put in your mouth. You could have a cocktail, you could have beer, you could have wine, but there's certainly wines that I prefer with my pizza. And because I get to eat pizza just so rarely that I would want it to be something special. All right. So there is a particular varietal that is your specialty of wine when it comes to winemaking. Yes. And by the way, I, I want to just put a little plug in here and explain that you are the winemaker at Jay Wilkes, but that's part of a much bigger organization, which you're also an ambassador for. Correct. And do you want to just like give a rundown of the brands? Because sure. people will know a lot of these brands. Sure. So I work for the Miller Family Wine Company, which has been in agriculture in California since 1871. We are one of the largest fully non-corporate family-owned wineries in the Central Coast. And we make the Jay Wilkes wines, which are about, you know, 15 to 30 bucks on the shelves. Then we make a barrel burner, which is a Cabernet and a Chardonnay, kind of Napa style for about 16 bucks. We make Ballard Lane, which are about 12 bucks per bottle. And then we make Smashberry, which is a delicious blended red wine that's about 15 bucks on the shelves as well. And all these wines are grown either at our vineyard holdings, 2,400 acres between wow. Vienna Cito, Solomon Hills, and the French Camp Vineyard. Wow. And you make great value wines, I think is an important thing to say. You know, really delicious wines, very approachable wines. But there is a particular varietal, as I mentioned, that's sort of your thing and I'm going to ask you, pizza-wise, first of all, you can tell us the varietal, and then tell us what pizza should it pair with. So Pinot Noir. And Pinot Noir has basically the only red wine that works like a white wine because it has the highest acidity levels of any red wine. So it has some like cut. It has some energy. It has some verb. So there's nothing you can't put on a plate that Pinot Noir won't match with, maybe except artichokes and asparagus. But even with those, you can put some butter and some truffles in it and make it right. But I'm going to say... One of the greatest things you can 
eat with Pinot Noir's mushrooms. So mushroom pizza. How about duck or duck prosciutto? If you put some <laughs> duck into the fancy. Okay, yeah. Let's back up. Let's back up and just say mu- mushroom and pepperoni. How about have, mushroom and pepperoni? They don't have this at Little Caesars. No, no. <laughs> I would say mushroom pizza would be delicious with Pinot Noir. Mushrooms and, and sausage would be wonderful too. You get a little of that fennel well, from the sausage. Well, what's really interesting is I'm, I'm actually looking right now at an infographic that apparently was put together by Disney. Okay. They have a big food and beverage program. Oh, they certainly do. They've got a lot of resorts. And they pair Pinot Noir with a cheese pizza. Why not? Just a plain cheese pizza. The best pizza I've ever had in my life was a cheese pizza that I had in Lucca, Italy with buffalo mozzarella and just made by a Napolese couple with love. So a cheese pizza can be one of the greatest pizzas you can ever have. It's the Americans that have to put so many toppings on them, but you know, something I, I know. simple it's is like easy. The everything pizza, the meat gorgers pizza <laughs> and you know, all these things. But I kind of like them simple. You know, it's funny because I used to be that person who would put a ton of different stuff on yeah. the pizza. But now like my favorite pizza is just one step away from the cheese pizza, though it's a pizza that has to be made properly to even call it a margarita pizza. Oh, yes. There's really only three pizzas in Italy, and margarita is one of them. Margarita, Bianca, and the Fungi. It's got triple sec and <laughs> and tequila on it, and that's why they call it a margarita. No, it's got basil, and it's got a special cheese that you're only supposed to get from Italy. And the sauce, they're very particular about that. And the crust, there are laws. You can be thrown in jail for life if you don't make a margarita pizza correctly. Yes, it has to be crispy, almost like a Napoli sort of cracker style, very bubbly. Big high, old bubbles, yeah. High gluten flour. And the cheese should be fresh mozzarella made from uh, water buffalo. The buffalo mozzarella, M- yeah. Buffalina, yes. Uh, so what do we pair with that? Oh, goodness. A perfect margarita. Um, Pinot Blanc. Pinot Bianco from either Alto Adige or from Jay Wilkes. Okay. And then another suggestion that I've seen with that one is Pinot Grigio. Yeah. Pinot Grigio is tough. I mean, there's so many Pinot Grigios that are overwrought. It's sort of like alcoholic 7-Up without the bubbles. I prefer Pinot Blanc over Pinot Grigio because it tends to have a lot more soul, a lot more body, a lot more minerality, a lot more flavor. If you've never had a Pinot Blanc from Alsace or from the Alto Adige, it's absolutely amazing. By the way, real quick. People see the term Pinot Grigio, they see the term Pinot Gris. Show us the difference. Difference is generally the style and the language you're using. If you're calling it Pinot Gris, you're using French. If you're calling it Pinot Grigio, you're using Italian. You're basically both describing a Pinot cluster, which was a genetic mutation or accession from Pinot Noir a few hundred years ago, where the grape went through a genetic mutation and became different. Instead of having black grapes, Pinot Noir, you ended up with gray grapes, which were Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris, gray Pinot. And then Pinot Blanc would actually be the same color as Chardonnay, golden, a little bit of green so it's more of a white colored pinot grape so you have the white pinot grape pinot blanc or pinot bianco and then you have pinot gris and pinot grigio generally is made in stainless steel concrete or glass pinot gris is generally uh, commonly made in older french oak barrels so it has a little more creaminess and it might not be as bright pinot grigio tends to be the grape we use because of santa margarita basically yeah, turning and, and into and a I tell you something, it's, it's something that really confuses people it's a big 
point of confusion. So I'm glad you clarified that. I'm here to help. And by the way, if you ever need clarification on questions like that, go to your local Total Wine and More. Absolutely. They, re- they really, really know their wines. And don't be afraid to ask a question like that. There are no dumb questions. No, their training is really, really good. Yeah. I've actually gone there and asked about spirits and beer and, and stuff that I don't know. I mean, I don't actually ask too many questions about wine, but the, the questions I have asked, I've noticed that the answers have always been accurate. And I've got a Total Wine near my house, and I'm stoked to go there as often as I can. I do actually continue to buy wine there. What I love is that there's practically nothing that you can't find there. And I went into the one in Thousand Oaks a couple of weeks ago. There were some fun things, and I had to have them. And, man, they knew them. If you want to know where there's a Total Wine near you, you can just go to TotalWine.com. Also see all the stuff that they got going on online. You can place orders online. You can find all kinds of pairings. Just lots and lots of information. It's very information rich totalwine.com will be back with Wes Hagen and more grape encounters right after this we like to talk about wine welcome back to grape encounters where we believe there's no way to fake a great wine and where we never fake our disdain for the really bad ones. Back with Grape Encounters and my buddy Wes Hagen. We're taking wine pairing down to earth for a few minutes here, but we're going to change the subject in just a second. I want to just like throw really quickly a couple of other pizzas at you for a pairing. Here's a super interesting one, and it's actually one of my favorite pizzas to eat, the Hawaiian pizza. Oh, boy. We're bringing up pineapple. The Internet's going to go crazy. Let's go with uh, sparkling vouvre. So it's Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley yeah. made as a sparkling wine with a little bit of residual sugar. So a sparkling Demisac Vouvray. I'm going with a Riesling. Could be White Zin, too. Could be White Zin, too. Yeah. I've told this to people a number of times that even though you make some of the finest wines in the world, my friend Wes goes out for sushi and orders a Behringer Zin. White Zin with a spicy White tuna Zin, roll is yeah. delicious. And if you're too proud not to eat like a delicious spicy tuna roll with a glass of White Zin, you just need to take yourself a little less serious. All right. Let's do one more. How about... A sausage and pepperoni pizza. Sausage and pepperoni, I'm going with a Zinfandel. Any Zin will be delicious with that classic protein combination. I'm going to go just slightly to the right of Zin, and I'm going with a nice big Syrah. Syrah is perfect. That peppery character that peppery with a little, thing. Yeah, exactly. little of the, with that nice uh, little spice in the sausage. Perfect. All right. I'm going to turn you loose on something now. So explain again what you're going to explain. I can't even wrap my arms around around it, but I can't wait. I'm going to connect the 15th century and the beginning of the Enlightenment with how it was wine who started it all off. And then you think you're going to know where I'm going to go, but I'm going to take a hard left turn with some connections that hopefully will blow your mind. I've pulled out my phone and now I am going to set my stopwatch because I want to see how long it takes to put this little jewel together. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the inimitable Wesley Hagen. So in the 15th century and about the mid-1400s, Johannes Gutenberg 
Gutenberg invented the movable printing press. The printing press that he made was actually made out of a wine press. So basically the first printing press was actually made using a screw press that was a wine oh press. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. So wine technology leads to literacy in the middle class. He prints 200 Bibles, I think only like 12 are still around today, but then other books began to be published. At that point, people start realizing as they can afford books that their eyes suck and they can't read because the only people that bought glasses before then were monks who were making these illuminated manuscripts. What ends up happening is the middle class clamors for glasses and lens technology explodes. If you want to buy the best glasses in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, you go to one village in the Netherlands, in Zealand, in a place called Middleburg. And two things happen in Middleburg within 10 years of each other that'll blow your mind. Two different lens grinders invented two prototypes that changed the world. One was the prototype of the microscope, which was given to a guy named Leeuwenhoek in 1630s. Leeuwenhoek turned it into the compound microscope that Louis Pasteur used to look under and invent germ theory, trying to figure out why beer goes bad. Okay. So here's alcohol again. Basically, Pasteur trying to figure out what was going on. Pasteur invents germ theory. Germ theory becomes the basis for all clinical medicine in the world today. Before Pasteur and before the microscope, doctors would move from autopsies to live patients and not even wash their hands because they didn't know that they were spreading what we now call germs. So wine press leads to printing press, leads to lens technology, leads to the microbial and microscopy. The understanding of Pasteur and lens technology leads to a germ theory, which basically gives us all modern medicine. But I'm not done because in the same village within 10 years, they also invented the prototype for the telescope, which was the Dutch spyglass. So if you ever see a pirate movie, you know, they're looking through the spyglass at the guys chasing them on the ocean. That technology is given to Galileo Galilei by a guy named Lippershey in 1608 and basically turns into the telescope, which looks into the heavens, which gives us an idea of of the cosmological universe. And Galileo finds out Copernicus was right. We are not the center of the universe, gets him in huge trouble with the church. They lock him in the tower until he dies. Lens technology. So it all goes from the printing press, which was based on the wine press, wine press, printing press, literacy technology, lens technology, and then an opening up of the cosmological universe and understanding of the microscopic universe and basically leads to the enlightenment in which we have given ourselves, what, 30 extra years as human beings. So wine has not only given us pleasure, but wine has given us the basis for all modern science in the world today. Oh my God. <laughs> three minutes and seven three seconds. Minutes, three minutes and seven seconds. And it works too. That's the weird part. You know, this all came into my mind reading one real book, a book by a cognitive psychology professor at Harvard. And his name is Dr. Steven Pinker. He wrote a book called Enlightenment Now. If you want to have your mind blown, go get Enlightenment Now or just look up Steven Pinker TED Talk. In eight minutes or less, he will explain why we live in the greatest moment in human history. Not only to drink wine, because for $5, if you go down to Total Wine and More and spend $10 on a bottle of wine, you will be drinking wine that is of higher quality than what would have been drunk by kings, queens, princes, and princesses 100 years ago. Yeah, that's, a, that's a funny point that you make and something that I've talked about a couple of times on the show is that what I call tanker truck wines, you know, they're made in really big volume are still vastly better than if you could go back 40 years, let's say, at the early period of the development of areas like Napa and Sonoma. Not that they weren't there for a long time, but from a commercial standpoint. And I've tasted a lot of wines that go back 50, 40 years. And yes, they're old and aged. But you can still tell that the wines we're making today are just way super better. I have to go and say, let's give credit to everything post-prohibition. 
pre-prohibition winemaking, well, pre-Pasteur, but really the, the moment was why are American wines, some of the cleanest wines in the world, and why are French and Italian sending their kids to the United States to learn to make wine? It's because we had prohibition. What? Prohibition made our wines better? Yeah, because after prohibition, Davis, Fresno, all the universities that started teaching wine, we had no anecdotes because we had no winemaking tradition. The thing about Davis and all these universities after prohibition and guys like Amron and all these professors that changed the world of wine in a post-prohibition world, we had to relearn to make wine in the United States because we kind of forgot. And as a result, we started making it scientifically. Nowhere else in the world are people making wine as scientific as, as wines were being made in California in post-prohibition. And that's because we relied on science and not on anecdote. And you know what's really amazing is when you drink a wine that has been made for maybe a century or longer in Europe, you, you'll get a lot of times this sensation of, you know, an old European, 500-year-old European church or the sort of mustiness. And, and people will ask, they go, why is it when I drink wine in Europe, a lot of times I get that sensation, but I never get it from California wines. And it is sanitation. It is. And it's not a bad thing. No. It's something that they're very proud of not being the kind of germaphobes that we are. Right. Do you get that? Well, the greatest wines I've ever had have had interesting side flavors. They've been a little complex or earthy or musty or maybe some of the best wines I've ever tasted, wines that I've tasted that have cost someone over $1,000, tend to have aromas that we would fault California wines for. If they smelled a little funky, a little like a barnyard or whatever. Now, if they if California wine smells like a barnyard, it's a faulty wine. Now, if, if a Domaine de la Romani Conti 1963 smells like barnyard, well, it's worth $3,000 and that's complex. But, you know, I love wine. And if someone says this is a perfect wine, I'm not all that interested. I want to taste a wine that has character, a wine that has flavor, a wine that was made with some soul. I think the enlightenment worked, science works, and we should make beautiful, clean, expressive wines that make people happy and that smell and taste representative of the place and the time they And this is an argument that I get into sometimes at wine competitions with judges who get so mired down in varietally correct. Right. You know, and I always look at it and go, well, wait a sec. If we really took that seriously to the nth degree that every Cabernet would taste the same, every yeah. Pinot would taste the same, they would all taste the same. If I gave 50 chickens to 50 chefs and said, bring back your interpretation of a chicken dish, yes. I want fried chicken, I want chicken piccata, I want yes. chicken parmesan, and they're all way different. And I hope that every winemaker does when they approach you know, those grapes that are sitting in that bin. And you said competition. That's why you're a retailer and a media personality. I want you on my panel. I'm a winemaker. Okay, I've got a winemaker on the panel. Then I want a sommelier on the panel. And then the last guy, maybe uh, an academic. So you say, what can I sell? I say, what can I taste from a craft perspective? You know, the sommelier is tasting to say what it would taste like if you poured it for a bunch of fancy people. And the academic is saying, was this wine made in a microbially stable manner? Yeah. So the, that's why a gold medal is worth a lot more to me than a 93 points. I love 93 points, getting 93 points, but a gold medal is four judges from four different perspectives getting gotcha. together and saying, this is delicious. Yeah. All right. Well, Wes, I know you got to get down the road. I got the home stretch of Grape and Caddish. Nice to have you here. It was a beautiful, beautiful day here uh, in the bunker. So thank you for having me out and thank you for everything that you do for wine. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Wes. For more information about Wes's wines, best place to go is... Oh, you can go to MillerFamilyWines.com or JWilks.com. You can even just send me a direct email at W 
jwhagen at jwilks.com. I'm, I'm always happy to answer uh, specific questions. You do questions. answer your mail. I do. Too. Yeah, I do. I love, cool. I love being connected. That's why I drink wine. And that's why, you know, that's why we're all out here having fun. Well, that's super awesome. Okay, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More. You can find out everything they got going on at totalwine.com. By the way, just go to totalwine.com. Do some exploring there because there's so much content on that website. You'll get lost on it for sure in a good sort of way. And we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. You know, at the beginning of the year, I made a New Year's resolution that I was going to make a better effort to read more of the emails and letters that you folks send me. And I've been getting really some terrific feedback from all of you, and I hope you will keep it up because it really adds a great dimension to the show. I'm going to read a letter from a listener in Alaska in just a moment, but as long as I'm talking about mail, I was opening up the mail this morning, and I got a letter inviting me to a luncheon. And it was a luncheon at a restaurant that I happen to know and love their food. And I'm very fortunate because in my line of work, I get invited to a a lot of food and wine-related events. So when I saw the name of the restaurant, I decided to read on and see what was going on. And they were inviting me to, I guess, a a seminar. And I wondered what the subject was. I continued to read on. Oh, my gosh. They were going to be doing a seminar on cremation. Oh, God. Cremation. Like, that's what I want to talk about at a luncheon, right? Oh, gosh. Anyway, I I don't know what kind of food they're serving at that luncheon, but I surely hope it's not barbecue. Anyway, it turns out that the cremation company is one of those that takes your ashes out to sea. So hopefully they're serving seafood, but I think I'm going to skip that one for now. I don't know why I even brought that up, but it just seemed a little strange. (laughs) Like, I don't want to go to lunch and talk about cremation. Anyway, let's talk about the letters from you guys. I got a wonderful note this week from a listener who was commenting on some of the things that I talked about in last week's Grape Encounters. And his name is Jason. He is from Alaska. And he says, hello, David, two things that I heard you talk about this afternoon on Grape Encounters uh, here in Fairbanks, Alaska, have a Paul Harvey-esque, the rest of the story, additional information that I thought might interest you. Number one, regarding Captain Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart of Star Trek, The Next Generation, often called TNG for short, to distinguish it from the original series TOS and its subsequent movies, Wine and the Picard family's vineyard in Le Bar, France, were central to at least one episode of the TNG series, which was titled Family. See the Memory Alpha website. Anyway, it is for me at least one of the more memorable episodes involving the sibling rivalry and differing values between Jean-Luc and his older brother Robert and the desire of Jean-Luc's younger nephew, René, to follow his uncle's rather than his father Robert's career path. Anyway, what um, 
Jason is referring to is I've been talking a little bit here and there about the new Picard series on CBS, which is really, really awesome. I've got a chance to watch part of it. And what it's really all about is that uh, Captain Picard, some years after leaving Starfleet, goes back to his roots, which is a chateau in Bordeaux. And he's not really very happy there. And eventually, well, I'm not going to tell you how the rest of the series goes. But anyway, that is what Jason is referring to. And I'm always impressed with you guys who have accumulated such massive information about these series that are totally based on fantasy. I can't keep up with that kind of thing. But Jason, thank you for that. And again, the episode that Jason is steering us to is Memory Alpha. So if you're a Trekkie and a enthusiast, you might want to check that out. Anyway, Jason goes on to say, and before I even actually read his comment, I should say that I talked a bit about concrete tanks that are now becoming a really big part of the winemaking industry. And specifically, I was talking about tanks where they actually take stone from the place uh, where the vineyard is sitting and they grind it up and they use that ground stone as part of the concrete that then makes these tanks and the wine is then fermented in the tanks and also aged in those tanks. And it's interesting because using the stone from that property uh, in some cases will impart some of the flavors that are indigenous to that particular area. And I just think it's a really cool concept. I'm not sure just how much is imparted into the wine, but there's a lot of people that believe that it really makes a huge difference. Anyway, this is what Jason writes about that. He says, you talked about the concrete tanks made of specially formulated concrete, which sometimes includes powdered stone of the type or types of stone found in or on the soil of the vineyards which are increasingly being used in the production of wines, and you commented on how these tanks are widely considered to be unusual. Well, I didn't say they were unusual. I just said that using that particular stone is a bit unusual because they don't always do that. Anyway, he says they really aren't so unusual, although that doesn't diminish by one iota their utility or the genius of the winemakers who thought of the concept at all. Here's why. And I love this comment. He says, when I lived in the Blue Ridge Mountains of northern Georgia between 1976 and 1985, between the towns of Young Harris and I don't even know how to say this, Hiawassee, I'd still be living in that beautiful place if after my father's death in early 1985, my mother hadn't moved us back to my hometown of Miami, but I was just a teenager back then. He says that water was sometimes collected from a freely spouting, self-cleansing well. A short length of six-inch pipe protruding from an embankment along the side of the mountain highway, not far from the town of Helen, Georgia. Now, he says, the water which came and no doubt still comes out of the pipe at great velocity, arching several feet horizontally before hitting the ground. The pipe was, is always clean, even around its edges for that reason was is filtered through many cubic miles of granite in the ridge above. There are also mica inclusions in the granite, as can be seen in the locally made dirt road and dirt driveway gravel surfacing materials. Thanks to the gravel, mica, and other minerals that filter and donate ions to the water, it is the best-tasting water I've had the pleasure to drink. Our 400-foot-deep 
electrically pumped well at our house was also drilled into granite mica strata, as were our neighbor's wells. And our water was equally good. Given this, it is no surprise, but it makes it no less wonderful that carefully, thoughtfully formulated concrete tanks could add additional enjoyable flavors to wines that are made in them. Anyway, that was my point in sharing that story with you. And Jason, I really appreciate you sharing your personal story. Well, you know, it's interesting that as high tech as we continue to be and get in the wine industry, it sometimes is the low tech stuff that really makes the very best wine. That is going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. Grape Encounters, of course, brought to you by Total Wine and More. You know, if you want to taste some amazing, amazing wines that come from processes just like this that are cutting edge, but maybe also very low tech in some regards, talk to the folks at Total Wine and More. Every bottle of wine has a story and no two wines are made exactly the same. We will see you here next week. I really appreciate all of your comments and I appreciate you listening very much. That's going to do it for now. And I'll see you at this very same time in seven days. (laughs) 